0: back! Happy Sunday evening. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to A Minor Detail on BlogTalkRadio.com/slash A Minor Detail. That's right. We're internet radio, and sometimes we say bad words. Yeah, that's the way it is. Um, so tonight, oh, I, I always have to mention this. Go sign up to my website. So I just reorganized my website. I updated it, and it's a slow process. And before I had a pretty generic blog that was way outdated (laughs) the WordPress theme was just just way outdated and so I finally updated it to a new theme and then over the weekend I spent half of yesterday reorganizing the website building it better SEO all that stuff and I'm struggling but now you can get a minor detail in your morning inbox every morning by 7 a.m go to my website, aminordetail.com, and on the right-hand side, you can subscribe, and we won't spam you. We'll just send you the latest news each morning, so I would be remiss if I failed to mention that. Tonight, I have a special guest. I've been trying to get her on for, for a long time, and she's very busy. Um, her name is Jolene Ivy, and you might remember her as a state delegate, but you might remember her even sooner, because she was, in 2014, um, the lieutenant governor candidate on the same ticket with a former Attorney General Doug Gansler, and I asked Jolene to come on tonight to have a conversation, and we're going to talk about some tough issues tonight, but it's important to have these conversations, especially when we're so mixed up in really serious issues like race. We're going to talk about what's happening here in Maryland as it relates to some of these uh, outdated statues. We're going to talk about Chief Justice Roger Taney, who came down from Maryland's State House grounds. And so Jolene is just one of those really fine people that I have followed her career for a long time. She's been a dynamic voice in the state of Maryland, and she is someone that who's always offered a reasonable position on on these issues. So I want to welcome former state delegate Jolene Ivy. Hey, Jolene.
1: Hey, how you doing, Ryan? Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: I'm I'm glad to have you. It's been a I I've, I've wanted you to come on for such a long time and this is I think now a great opportunity to to hear your voice, especially on some of these more impactful um cultural issues that we're dealing with as a country. And just when you we move ten steps forward, it seems like something happens on the national scene that moves us in a different direction or a sideways direction. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, especially given last week's events that unfolded in Charlottesville, where some of these white supremacist groups uh, met up and uh, rallied uh, around a Confederate statue or, or what they called unite, unite the right and had a free speech rally. I get all that, but it turned into so much more that, really propelled race back into the national conversation. But before we dive into all that, um, let's talk about you. Um, so you you became a delegate, a state delegate, way back in what, 2003? Does that, does that sound right?
1: No, it, it was uh, 2006 was the election, and I took office in 2007 no. in January.
0: Oh, okay. Your Wikipedia bio is wrong then. It says assumed office. Whatever.
1: I still know. <laughs> I know the yeah. truth. I was there. <laughs> I wasn't so, even thinking about running for office in 2003. So I'll have to yeah. figure out <laughs> how to fix my Wikipedia. It's not something yeah. I control.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you can go in and edit. So I was just looking at this. I, I should have looked on the, the Maryland, the, the the official Maryland website. So um, nevertheless, uh, you were um, you were born in, and raised um, in Washington, D.C. Is that right? That is
1: correct, in Northeast D.C.
0: Sure okay. was. And then you went to High Point High School, and then you Which is in to,
1: Prince George's County. Yeah. We, we and had then moved you went, to the county when I was 15.
0: Oh, okay. So then you lived in D.C. all the way up until you were 15, and then you moved to PG mm-hmm. County. Okay. That's right. And then you went to Towson University. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I got a, a bachelor's bachelor of arts in mass communication and then you became a then you went to University of Maryland to get a degree in journalism um and then you co-hosted a, a pretty popular show of, of say baltimore on wmar tv in 1983 um I wasn't yes, alive
1: then <laughs> I did yeah oh god i'm so scared <laughs> yeah it was a lot of fun i uh, did that show and i also uh, later went to back to channel 2 as a producer which was actually more my speed. I really enjoyed producer because you control a lot more when you're the producer than when you're the talent. Hmm. And I like okay. to be in control.
0: Yeah. Well So and yeah, then you... it was
1: it was great. And and then I went to be uh press secretary for then Congressman, Ben Cardin. Uh he was on the house side at that point. And uh while I was his press secretary, I married my husband, Glenn Ivy, And um, then I got pregnant. And then when our oldest son was born, our first child, um, I stopped working for money and started working for my children, basically. Mm-hmm. And I was home with them for 16 years. Uh, we have five beautiful boys. Well, five I think five beautiful sons now. Yeah. Wow. I shouldn't call them boys anymore because the youngest is seventeen, so he's hardly a boy and the oldest is twenty seven and pays taxes and you know, uh pays his own rent and yeah. Wow. Works.
0: Well yeah, God bless so, you for and
1: that. It, yeah, they're they're all they're good kids.
0: Yeah. And your husband, Glenn, um, great guy. I I had an opportunity to talk to him during the last election. And why? Well, I had hoped he had won, um, but you know he's he's done a lot of publics. He's been an excellent public servant in, in PG County yeah. and has a lot of respect in the community. So I'm 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 hoping yeah, that. No, he
1: and he's so much nicer of a person than I am. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I find that hard to believe. Come on now.
1: No, that's um, actually true. <laughs> I laugh, but it's actually true. He's he's a, a very, very good and kind person. And uh you know. So I guess I married up in that way, but somebody's gotta gotta yell at the uh people who come and, and need to be yelled at. And so that's well, my job.
0: Well Marilyn, you, you did your fair share of yelling when you were
1: on the Houseways <laughs> and
0: Means Committee, I assume
1: yeah it was uh it was an interesting place to be um yeah Sheila Hickson was my chair, and mm. I know now that ann Kaiser's the chair, she so is. I'd be interested to know what it's like to to uh be on ways and means now. I'm sure it's a different animal, but mm. um you know I have a lot of respect for both of them, and I work very closely with uh, with Delegate Kaiser when she was on Ways and Means because she chaired the Education Subcommittee. And that was my favorite subcommittee that I was ever a member on. So once I got on it, I begged to stay on. And I, um, I always feel like if you just act as if, then you can do whatever you want, right? So I acted as if that I was the vice chair of the Education Subcommittee. And I believe that the only reason that I was not actually the vice chair is that position does not exist
0: <laughs> well, There's since no you're vice
1: chair of a subcommittee, but I just pretended that I was I liked it
0: well, since you've left the House of del, do you miss Annapolis? do you miss the, the work that you you've done at the at, down in good old Annapolis and on behalf of the constituents of your district?
1: Well, I don't miss being in Annapolis, frankly. I miss some um, individuals that I got to be friends with, and I still see them occasionally, so that's good, or we'll text each other or whatever. I don't miss being in Annapolis um, as far as I. if I wanted to be back, I would run for it now, and I'm not running for that again. Mm-hmm. So I was done. If I hadn't been done with that position and felt like I had accomplished you know the things I wanted to accomplish, then I would never have taken the risk of running for lieutenant governor with Doug. But yeah. I was ready for a new challenge, and so, you know, I rolled the dice. That didn't work out, but got no regrets. I would do it all again.
0: I always wondered how that conversation went down when, when a in in the national instance where a president or a can, presidential candidate, they call up the guy that they or gal that they want to be the vice president. We kind of know how it went down with John McCain and Sarah Palin, but how did it go down with you and Doug? Did he call you up and say, Hey, I want you on the ticket. Or did you have to have long discussions or were you ever being considered by other candidates? I'm always curious how those conversations happen.
1: Well, I can say that Doug and I have known each other for a long time because he was state's attorney of Montgomery County at the same time that Glenn was state's attorney of Prince George's. So um, we had interactions through that and social times together. And, you know, I knew him and I knew Laura, his wife, and I knew that they were good people. Um, so when it came down to the time where he was starting to, to uh, consider who he wanted to run with him, He already knew me, and we'd already been talking just more normally, and I remember running into him at an event, and it just seemed to be a great opportunity just to sit and talk together, so um, we probably sat and just talked about all kinds of things for about a half an hour, and all these people kept coming up trying to talk to him because he's running for governor. People want to talk to him, and he kept very politely blowing them off so he could continue the conversation with me, which I admit, that was kind of fun, right?
0: <laughs> it had to be, <laughs> but, I'm sure. Um,
1: yeah, but when, when uh, over many, many conversations, by the time he got to the point where he did um, basically propose that to me, I was really surprised. I did not expect that at that moment. I'm not saying I didn't expect it ever, but that wasn't the moment I expected it. Um, And it was um, pretty exciting, I'd say. And it was fun, exciting at first, but when um, very, very, very soon after, as it started to be leaked that I would be that person, then the uh, powers that be on the other side, Started dragging out all kinds of junk that was really old news and not even true news to throw at Doug. And maybe should have handled it a little better. But I don't, I did never believed the things that they were um, making a big deal about were really issues that I cared about. I don't know about anybody else, but um, I've seen too many people. Um, driving too fast and he wasn't even the one driving too fast you're saying that somebody driving him was driving too fast or was driving on the on the side or whatever the only thing i can tell you about doug gansler he hates to be late and it's not because he it's a personal thing for him he hates to put the other person who's waiting for him in the position of waiting for him he feels it's disrespectful So he just hates to be late and he doesn't like it when other people are late, but he really hates to be that person who's held somebody else up. So I could see that he felt anxious, you know, anytime he felt that he was going to be late for a meeting because he values that other person's time. And I don't think that he conveyed that well, perhaps, but um, I don't think that that's the end of the world. Or the thing that should determine who is the next governor. So the things that they dragged out, I just didn't think were the end all. But, um, you know, that's politics.
0: Do you think he was unfairly attacked in, in the press by certain people or media outlets? What What's your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the media and the uh, the media just adores a fight, right? It makes it much more exciting. It's more exciting to have people throwing things at each other and going at it. Uh, so, you know, part of it's the media and part of it is the, the people who are doing the throwing. They're, they're trying to drum up whatever interest candidate. And we all know how that worked out in the end.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, it did. And w- let me ask you this question. This might be a tough question, and I I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'd be remiss if I didn't.
1: Oh, sure, but, you do. You love to. It's what you live but, for, Ryan.
0: I, I, it's true. If <laughs> had you and Doug won, would it would it have been Lieutenant Governor Jolene Ivey and Governor Gansler? Well, what do you mean? I, what I mean is, would. At, at the time, given Anthony Brown's – I mean, let's just face it. There was a campaign that everybody thought uh, after he had won that it was his. It was his to lose. Everybody sure. declared Hogan the sacrificial lamb. They said, oh, this is just another you – know, this is not quite Bob Ehrlich, but Republicans can't win in the state of Maryland statewide. It's just not going to happen. Come election Although night –
1: Ehrlich had done it.
0: He he did. But I, I think in fairness, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend was not a, a stellar candidate for the Democratic Party. That just was a, a campaign that sort of imploded at the last minute. And it didn't go well. Nonetheless, Larry Hogan became governor, because I think he largely, he, he didn't ignore any portion of the state, whereas Anthony should have spent more time out in Western Maryland, and I think he took for granted a few places around the state. You know, maybe you should—maybe he should have spent more time on the Eastern Shore. And some people still think that Governor Hogan's election in 2014 is a fluke. I don't know if I buy that, but I do think that Anthony Brown just proved to be a pretty awful candidate. And it's not—I don't want to be mean to Anthony Brown, but I just. I, I think that looking back, we can Monday morning quarterback here, but overall, wasn't wasn't the best showing for the Democratic Party in Maryland. And I, you I know, just happened, I have to yeah.
1: say, Ryan, when the primary was over, I really didn't think a lot about Anthony Brown or his or his campaign. I have no idea what he was doing on the Eastern Shore. I have absolutely no idea. I became involved in Patrick Armstrong's campaign who was running county council in Anne Arundel County, mm-hmm. you know, and he's uh, he's a very fine Democrat and he, I believe he would have won except for his Republican opponent came up with a robocall that recently was the subject of a court case um,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: where, where yeah. his, the, the, they did a robocall accusing him of all kinds of crazy stuff that he had nothing to do with, right? So they they, they started, because he is openly gay, which is totally fine, um, they acted like he was involved with what they call the bathroom bill. Hmm. Well, Patrick has never had to vote on any bill because he was not yet elected. And yet they, um, they just made, they just, really appeal to the basis part of his own base of the man who won. I won't repeat his name because why, (laughs) but um, you know, so anyway, I, I was, I was involved with Patrick Armstrong's campaign. You know, you get to know people all over the state when you're running statewide and you make friends and you form alliances and they don't dissolve with the, with the primary. So I felt compelled to go help Patrick. And I'm happy that I did. So I really wasn't paying much attention to Anthony Brown's race. I just know that on election night, um, I was on the Bruce DePoitte show. I think it was on channel. I know it was channel Mm -hmm. eight. And yeah, I was on live and um, former Governor Ehrlich was on with me. Mm -hmm. And I tell you what, you could have bought me for a nickel when he started showing me the numbers on his phone and showing me that um, that there was no way that the Democratic candidate was going to win. I was truly stunned. Wow. So, you know, it was definitely news to me. I, I just hadn't been paying attention. I assumed, like everybody else, that he was going to win, and no one had asked me to pitch in and campaign for him, so I figured he was fine. Usually they drag everybody out who lost, which – uh You know, you would do it because you feel, as a good Democrat, you have to. But who wants to go and help the person who just beat them, you know? That's a Glenn Ivey move. He would do that. Not a Jolene Ivey move. (laughs) But he would have done something like that gladly, and I would have done it but would have been annoyed. But um, it it never came to that. No one ever asked me to help.
0: Well, before we move into The other topic that we're going to discuss tonight, any predictions on the upcoming gubernatorial race? I know you're not running because you're running, you're running in PG County for Council District 5. Yes, I'm running for
1: county. Yes, I am. I am very happy to not be involved in a lot of uh, complicated races. Mine's pretty straightforward, and I'm trying to just keep my eyes on that prize and not get distracted by other people's races.
0: Lots of folks running for the Democratic nomination in Maryland. It's a big primary. Boy, I can't like.
1: even, I can't even keep up with everybody.
0: What eight? I could not Maybe.
1: name all of the Democratic. Oh, um, I'm gonna try. Candidates because I don't know them all.
0: You I'm know, usually try.
1: I end up knowing everyone like personally in some way, and in this case, I don't.
0: <laughs> I I think so. If if we go down the list, and this is who I have off the top of my head, you have. A new tech guy named Alec Ross, he's from uh, Baltimore. You have Rish Baker, your uh, your current county executive. And you have Ben Jealous, who is the former head of the NAACP, who campaigned alongside Senator Bernie Sanders in his presidential campaign. Then you have Kevin Kamenetz, who is not officially announced yet, but we all know Kevin Kamenetz is going to run for governor, or at least that's what all indications point to. And then you have um, the the, the uh, nice young lady that just announced Krishante, um, Cr- who we're we're not entirely sure if she's a registered Maryland voter yet, but that will be to dis- to be decided. Um, and I, so I the laugh. problem
1: for her is for the last five years that's her <laughs> problem. You have to be a registered Maryland voter for the past five years, and she's got some explaining to do, shall we say.
0: Well, that's certainly, that's, that's, that's going to be, I guess, more to that. There should be a a, a semicolon next to that because we're not sure how that, that's going to play out. And I'm, I'm interested to follow that. Um, And then you have, let's see, Rich Madalino from Montgomery County. There's no one really from Western Maryland who is decided to run. There could be Maya Rockmore, who is Elijah Cummings' wife. She is, apparently considering it Um, i think that's it so far um
1: you know i I feel like there's still someone else isn't there one of the big attorneys there we go
0: yeah um and there's there's quite a few candidates out there i don't know how any of this is going to turn out it might the field may not even be settled who knows it maryland politics is very transient it's fluid there's lots going on but uh maybe around labor day some of the, you'll see a couple other candidates decide to throw their hat into the ring um maybe from Montgomery County I don't know but do you have any predictions
1: <laughs> no i really don't it's so interesting to watch and i'm super happy i'm not in this one <laughs> so yeah it's it's it'll be interesting i think that it does make sense although i know it's controversial uh delegate david moon is asking Uh, the leadership of the Democrats to not rally around a candidate yet to wait until the campaign has had a chance to play out. And although they might not agree with him, I think that that's essentially what's happening right now, just because nobody knows what's happening right now. So it's just too soon with so many people in it and too many variables involved. And I think it's going to matter in January, when we know how much money each of them has in the bank, because that does have an impact.
0: Of course it does. And anybody who says it doesn't it would, is, is a fool to believe that. So I want to ask you about something. Every When you were in Annapolis for the time that you spent there, what did you think every time you walked past that statue that you once described as a giant turd, um, which was <laughs> the – I'm telling you, I, I, I still have that, and it was the funniest – God, honest thing that you have ever said um, on on social media. <laughs> I have
1: videos. actually, I, I probably have said funnier things, but I think that was something that was just unexpected. But it's well, just what I thought at that moment. It's just, and it and it is really an affront to every, um, I would say, African American elected official who walks past it. But it's not just that; it's every citizen, every anybody who is a right thinking person who uh, knows who roger roger Tawney was and the thing that kills me is that the people who do know who he is or who he was um some of them up until recently were supporting that statue to remain and that was my problem when i was fighting the power back in 2007 trying to uh, rally the troops. I really thought, I'm so naive sometimes, if I can just like point out who this guy is, maybe they forgot who he was. He's just been like a piece of furniture. And so they forget who this man was, who this statue represents. And if I can just get them to think about it for like a nanosecond, any reasonable person would know that that statue should not be in front of our state house. But um, that is not what happened, and people in leadership kept telling me about history and blah 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 right it was um really an affront to me to every other person that seemed reasonable to me that that's who we gave a place of honor to
0: can i can so, I be honest um, with you I want to be mm-hmm. brutally honest with you um about Go something free. um when i and and I I didn't know this um and and I I I hope this doesn't sound ridiculous but did when I first saw did you not
1: know that I was black or something is that when what I you're first saw a picture of Ryan? you
0: I I did not know that you were an African American woman I I mean I, of course I knew you were a woman but I didn't know that you were well, African American that
1: much at least
0: yeah well, <laughs> sure
1: I am my uh <laughs> my um my dad is uh was he's past now but it's african-american and my mom is white you know my birth mom and then my parents were divorced well first of all when they got married it was illegal in maryland for them to be married so they had to live in dc yeah in the dmv they had to live in dc because um, maryland and virginia was illegal so we lived in dc and that's why i grew up in dc and my mom left when I was around three, and um, my dad raised me and my brother uh, as a single dad for a while, and when I was uh, close to seven, he married his college sweetheart. They re-met, um, and uh, she's, she was African American. So I was raised by two African American parents in Northeast D.C., And all the relatives that I ever knew, really, were black. My mom's family, obviously, was not connected with me. In fact, they weren't connected with her. They disowned her when she married my dad. So, because that was in the 50s. They they they're from Tennessee, and they weren't all that excited about it. So, uh, to me, I'm I'm completely black. I, I understand when people see me, they see something different. But my complete identity isn't even mixed. You know, I know other people who have parents of of one of each race will say that they're mixed or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're biracial. I don't feel that way because I I did not ever have that experience of um, being raised with white people as my family. Um, you know, today and as the years went by, my mom reconnected with us and heck, my mom pretty much thinks she's black if you want to know the truth.
0: <laughs> Have you ever let me ask you this question. I was thinking you 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 served as a delegate to Barack Obama's campaign to the 2008 Democratic National Convention, convention when it was held out in Denver. Interesting mm-hmm. time in our nation's history. And I of course, the story is somewhat similar, maybe parallels, you, you know, Barack Obama has an african Amer had an African-American father and his mother was um, an, his, a white his woman. His father
1: was African, yeah. not even African-American.
0: <laughs> no, I should say, you're exactly right. right. No, thanks for correcting me. Uh, for, as an African man from, from Kenya and his mother was a white woman from Kansas and he was largely raised by his white grandparents and... You and and Barack Obama, he he identifies, of course, as African American. Have you ever been? Have you ever been targeted by uh, in any form where people say, "But Jolene, you're also half white. Why don't you ever identify as that? Have you ever been targeted? Maybe at d- discriminatory in a, in a way? Well, has, has that ever occurred?
1: certainly, I've, certainly, I've been discriminated against for it, but you know that's. That's a little bit different than someone asking me why I I don't identify as both. I mean, it was actually my mother, my birth mother, when I was around 13, who said to me, well, Jolene, you do know you're half white. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, my God, she's right. I am half white. (laughs) Biologically correct, but Mm -hmm. culturally not correct. Um, I had, you know, I definitely feel it. I, I feel it every day when I'm out in the world. And um, I, to me, I'm looking from inside my body out of my eyes. I'm not looking at myself. So when I see other Black people and something happens, and I don't know those people, but you know, things happen in the world, and you exclaim, "Oh wow, look at that!" or "Oh, I had that yesterday," or whatever it is the way they react to me generally is what's this white lady talking to us you know and then I have to think oh man I forgot (laughs) I forgot they don't view me as part of the sisterhood which can hurt you know that's that's the kind of that can sting but um nonetheless I am and when I've had it happen more in years past than currently but I've had it happen um where there are white people who are racist who say racist things to me about black people and they expect me to kind of agree with them and I don't. I mean I learned long ago that the best thing to do is call them on it right then and there. So um that's how I'm trained. When that happens I tell them that they're wrong, I tell them that I'm black and um, I let them be uncomfortable, so well, it works.
0: That's that's sort of how I would address it. Um, so, and look, I grew up in Western Maryland. I grew up in Hagerstown, and God, love it. I, I love my community, my hometown. They they have some growing to do. I when you travel the state, Jolene, you know we live in a place, Montgomery County. It's very diverse. Our children go to school with several ethnicities cultures and it's great i love that they are introduced to a, a variety of different individuals when i went to high school elementary school middle school up in uh, williamsport maryland jolene um i could tell you off the top of my off the top of my head that i had maybe 15 or 20 african-american students and our high school it was predominantly white and i wasn't really introduced in, in into the real culture into when i until i left Hagerstown and went to college up in Pittsburgh and I lived in downtown Pittsburgh and I had an opportunity to to go out and 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 see the world and and there was a lot of people it was it was a shell shock for you know this white kid from western Maryland to go up into a city that has a, a lot of different people there and so you know we all learn differently. We all learn how to embrace cultures and how to just love people for who they are, not the color of their skin. And, you know, back in the time of the, you know, the Tawny court, and we, you know, we should talk about this. This is, you know, this is a guy who was born and raised in Calvert County. Um, he, you know, he was the fifth justice of the United States Supreme court. And as we remember, he's going, to, he is infamously remembered for, penning and authoring the uh, the majority opinion in this Dred Scott decision. And right. the Dred Scott de- decision was one um, that um, he, Dred Scott, he was a slave who was sued for his freedom um, because he was a, fo- uh, or I should say Dred Scott was a slave who had sued for his freedom because his former own uh, uh, owner, Um, was an army doctor. He had once practiced medicine in Illinois, which at the time was a free state. So Dred Scott's lawyers, they argued that because Dred Scott lived in a free state, that um, they did not recognize slavery, and Scott was legally a free man. And Roger Taney, he vehemently rejected that, that argument. And he said that the word citizen in the Constitution did not apply to blacks at the time, and therefore dred scott was not considered an american citizen and had no right whatsoever to sue in the federal courts so they you know of course the matter could have ended there but taney he wanted to legalize slavery everywhere even free states so effectively his ruling in dred scott that stated that since slaves were private property private property that the, the right to own them is protected by the Constitution, most specifically, which is amusing to me, the Fifth Amendment, which says no person can be deprived of property without the due process of law. So under taney's <laughs> ruling, not only was slavery legal in free states, but also the, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which was this compromise that uh, forbade slavery expansion into any of the – new territories north of the Missouri southern border. So that was ruled then null and void. So deci- um, his decision was pretty much based on this lifelong view that slaves were property, that they weren't real true citizens of the United States, therefore they had no right to sue in federal court. And it's arguably that the Dred Scott decision was one of the precursors to... The civil war which nearly divided our country and here we are all these years later in 2017 and we're still talking about race issues in america what the hell has happened to this country shouldn't these (laughs) issues be solved jolene shouldn't some of this i mean shouldn't we have a, a a general foundation that race issues in this country while still still we should discuss like we are tonight but is it, shouldn't this stuff be resolved by now? I mean, how do we reconcile well, you ourselves would, with that? You
1: would think so. But then you've got somebody like Donald Trump and the White House who got into office by making all kinds of inflammatory pronouncements about all kinds of minorities. So um, he said terrible, hateful, awful things, and people voted for him. In fact, Fifty-three percent of white women voted for him, and that is just stunning to me that that could be so. It definitely makes me want to make it clear to everyone I am, in fact, a black woman. <laughs> I never would vote for Trump, and I really don't get that at all. But one thing about Tawny, also the the statue that's troubling, at the time that the, the Maryland legislature. Was voting because when you're voting, people like to get up and pontificate. And one of the statements made at the time they were voting to uh, erect the statue in in 1867, it is that they had the to vote. It took another five years to have the statue made and put up, but um, it said that one of one of the legislators said that it was. Uh, the statue was seen as a physical indication that the Dred Scott decision had been, quote, just, righteous, and right. Uh-huh. So this wasn't put up just because Tawny was this man who'd had all these wonderful positions in the government. No, that is not why he was why he was being honored. He was being honored because of the Dred Scott decision. And that is so horrifying to me that knowing that that we could still have until just a few nights ago before it was dragged out of the uh, state house lawn, that makes no sense.:
0: Well, yeah, and this it was lifted away by a crane at about two a.m. Um, was it on Friday morning, I believe? I think that was when it was, and it was,
1: yes, lowered- very, very early.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you were there, right? You watched this happen.
1: I was. I. Did. How did you find
0: was, out that it was going down at that time?
1: I don't know if I can disclose the name of the person who sent me the text to tell me.
0: Governor um, Hogan.
1: I will. It, no, it was not. <laughs> I do not have his cell, and as far as I know, he does not have mine. But it was someone else. <laughs> In his administration, who I actually like. So, you know, you like everybody somewhere, right? But, um, yeah, he sent me a text. I had been bugging him, actually, for some time, uh, trying to get the governor to take down the statue, because that's part of what I've been doing for the last 10 years, trying to get somebody to listen to reason. And uh, so when I found out that the governor made the statement that he thought it was time to take it down, I got in touch with my source and I said, please let the governor know I appreciate his decision. And if you all could just let me know when it's going to happen because I want to be there. And the response was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to know. I don't know if I can tell you. And I just said, Well, just tell me you're going to know just tell me I'm not going to spread the word and make it a big crazy thing I just want to know I think I have a right to be there after all this time and so you know I got the word a few hours in advance and uh, went on out there and it was a very calm reasonable group of people who some seemed to be there just because it was historic and some were there because it was historic and they 100% agreed with what was going on but so d- there were no people scene. there who were protesting describe there were the maybe scene. when i first got there there were maybe a dozen people and everybody seemed a little unsure as to what was going on because there were there was no evidence that anything was going to happen but on state circle uh, there were signs up all, all around the circle saying that there was no parking And that was the thing that it started to clue people in, that this might be the night. Hmm. So, um, you know, over, I got there at midnight, and over the next probably half hour or so, more people started to arrive, and big trucks started to arrive. And I was really curious, how in the world are they going to accomplish this? Because it's way up, um, up on the hill, and it's right by the statehouse. And these great big trucks, I didn't know, are they going to try to go up the stairs? Are they going to put out something so they can roll up there? But they had a truck with a really long telescoping arm that, uh, you know, they wrapped some straps around the statue and the arm came over and picked it up. Right around that time, the uh, the sprinkler system went off. Apparently, the sprinklers go off every night, maybe around one thirty in the morning. <laughs> And so that was a surprise. We all got pretty wet. But yeah. um, that was kind of fun, though. But, you know, it was a very calm group of people. When it finally was lifted up, It's kind of spontaneously, people started singing that song. Na-na-na-na,
0: na-na-na-na, <laughs> hey,
1: hey, hey, goodbye. So that mm. was Kind of a light moment, but beyond that, I mean there was a small burst of applause when it was about done, and um, people just lined up to see it off so there were probably more reporters or maybe an equal number of reporters and average citizens, and uh, it was probably I believe it was a hundred percent the right decision to do it in the middle of the night. Um, there were some who criticized the governor for making that decision, but Even if it had not been a controversial act to take it down, it was going to be a logistical nightmare if it had been packed with people and traffic would have been horrific. So, you know, they had to close off streets to do it. It it just didn't make any sense to do it in the middle of the day.
0: Yeah. The worst of
1: it for me is that I'm not a night owl. I really just am not. And for me to be up past like 10 11 o'clock is noteworthy so for me to be leaving the house to go somewhere at eleven thirty, 30 it's like I was a kid again but uh, I didn't feel like a kid again the next day with hardly any sleep and I still had to go to work so it's kind of a killer
0: when you were there, there and watching, every moment well when you were there and as it was reported that it was driven away around two twenty a.m was Jolene was that an emotional moment for you
1: No, I can't say it was emotional at that point. I think that uh, the more emotional moment for me is when um, the speaker, Mike Bush, first, he's the first one who said, it's time, it's time to take it down. So when he said that, it really made me feel like good and surprised because he's one of those people who'd been speaking on behalf of history a decade ago. So um, I was glad that he had said that. And then I remember, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh president of the Senate then said, I'll do what the governor wants.
0: Yeah, who, and, and but he when the governor, actually didn't do yeah. that.
1: <laughs> right, but that's what he said. And so then when the governor said it's time, I said, well, it's done. You need three votes out of four. And really, the fourth vote is going to do whatever the governor says. So um, I thought that it was basically going to be unanimous. I was a little surprised when Mike Miller had a change of heart, and I think maybe he just said he'd do what the governor wanted because he was sure that the governor was not going to want to remove it, but uh, maybe he think had Mike his Miller, issue. Do
0: you think Mike Miller is wrong?
1: Of course I think Mike Miller is wrong. hmm I mean, if I, mean, I thought he was right, I wouldn't have spent the last decade trying to get people to take that statue down. I don't I mean, know.
0: Mike Miller is saying, and he's he's saying that yeah, he's a avid reader of history and that Tawney freed his slaves early in his life and that he noted Tawny's many public roles in service, including being a state lawmaker in Maryland an attorney general, U.S. Secretary of War, U.S. Treasury and like Secretary. like I said.
1: None of those reasons is the reason that statue had been there.
0: That's right. The That's reason right. the
1: statue was there is because they wanted to affirm Dred Scott. So, therefore, this is a new day in history, and it's way overdue for us to take it down. We cannot continue to think that that is the appropriate place for that statue and um i'm very glad i i'm i'm sorry to have to disagree with him in that um i think mike miller has good things he's done for the state for sure but you never agree with anyone every single time and this is one of those times that he knows i've disagreed with him this isn't any surprise to him but um you know the time has come and for whatever reason he did not read the tea leaves
0: right Governor Hogan's taken some criticism from his party, and in fact, I wanted to share with you. I have a I have a good friend, but I, I can't name her. But nonetheless, she is she's running for office, and she was out doing some campaigning. She talked to several Republican households who told her that they are pissed at her because of her. Of, or not her, I should say, are pissed at Governor Hogan because he took this position that now Republicans are saying they're not going to vote for him, that he's betrayed some sort of history and that he's a terrible governor. And and, and I just, I want to understand that. Why why do you think these Republicans are coming out and saying that? What's that justification? They're They're hitting Governor Hogan on a decision that um, I'm sure it wasn't an easy one. It was the right one, I believe. And well,
1: they what, probably what voted for Trump. So what do you expect? I mean, these are the same people who voted for Trump.
0: Um, isn't that I Hogan's base believe, too?
1: Well, I'm sure it is. He's a Republican, and they're Republicans, and I'm sure they all voted for him. But I, I wouldn't, if I were Hogan, I wouldn't. I mean, as much as you know, I'm a Democrat. You, you got to support the Democrat, right? But I don't, I don't see this as being something that's going to really have an impact on an election that's not till next June. People have such short memories. And I cannot believe these are people, they probably didn't even know who Roger Taney was, right? They had no idea who this man was. They don't even know what the Dred Scott decision is. And if they did, they probably wouldn't change their mind because they probably wish they still—I don't know—had slaves. Who knows what people think, right? Wow. But, um, well, I'm—I'm I'm laughing on that last one. But I do think that they—they they probably didn't even know who Roger Connie was, really. Do you think that those are people who—who who really knew who he was? They probably had no idea, and they just want to have a little hissy fit. Because he took something away that the Democrats wanted him to take away. I
0: had I had studied Roger Taney for quite some time when when this when I first understood who the statue was, because to be honest with you, the first time I walked by this giant turd edifice that was sitting in front of a, <laughs> the state house. And it
1: ugly too, by the way. Well, very, it, is, it was a very unattractive it, statue. It,
0: it was a, a bit unsightly. And they say that when they were lowering him onto the crane, that you could see his face wallowing in sorrow or in shame, <laughs> some might say that, because Roger Taney was a very thin man, very ill most of his life. He had a lot of health problems, but I guess that's what racism does to someone. Um, it makes them physically <laughs> ill. So, um, you know, and they say that, look, Taney was apparently this deeply religious Roman Catholic who can, he considered slavery was, in, was evil um, and that he apparently had freed the slaves that he inherited it before he came to the Supreme Court, but he thought that slavery was a problem to be resolved gradually and chiefly by the states in which it existed. So they use that old state's rights argument that, mm-hmm. um, right. Uh, and of course people probably don't know that he was appointed. Many people don't know. I should say that he was appointed by Democrat Andrew Jackson at the time. And he and Jackson were close friends. And the reason why he was eventually appointed as a Supreme court justice, uh, he was, he was not in favor of the central bank. Jackson made him the treasury secretary in sort of a troll move. <laughs> so um, it, it, there's a long history here. And back at that mm-hmm. time, back during the era of um, when Supreme Court justices in the Supreme Court, which used to operate in the basement of the United States Capitol, the lines were ultimately blurred between the legislative and the judicial branch, and eventually, of course, they moved into the um, – right beside the Library of Congress, right, right off of – right behind the Capitol building. There was – there wasn't a whole lot of distinction between the judiciary and the legislative branch. Many of them had family members. Some of the associate justices had family members who argued cases before the Supreme Court. Um, it, it was an interesting time back then. The the judicial lines were blurred, and now there's that mm-hmm. clear separation. That distinction wasn't so clear back at that time, and largely, Supreme Court appointments uh, during the 19th century, Jolene, were very political. They were ex- excessively political. That they they would put you know a political hack on the Supreme Court. Um, so well,
1: the other thing is, of course, you and you just sort of pointed this out that the Republicans and the Democrats were kind of switched at that point they um, were. from where they are today. So whenever you say a Democrat did something at that time, you in your mind if you think of it as a Republican action, it would make more sense.
0: I I should mention too that there was fierce opposition to Roger Taney uh, coming on to the Supreme Court that prominent politicians at the time, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, John Calhoun, they they launched a fierce opposition to Taney being sworn in on the court. But nonetheless, he was sworn in as the chief justice in March of 1836, and he had inherited the conservative tradition of the southern aristocracy. And so he was a, a very troubled mixed bag of, of issues here. So some people hail him as one of the most important legal minds in the country and then many of us look at the the Dred Scott decision as the lead up to uh, a, a war that nearly destroyed the the union and no,
1: absolutely
0: so what do you make of this this argument from from both sides one side of the country is now saying that we should remove any of these all statues that memorialize or symbolize or glorify some of these Confederate heroes, like for instance, Robert E. Lee, the famous uh, Confederate general. But then you have other people, you know, that want to keep up statues of Frederick Douglass, who was a true and true piece of garbage. This is a, look in all realities. And yeah, Frederick are, um, I'm sorry, not Frederick Douglass, or who was the, Don't say
1: that about Frederick Douglass, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I am I am so misspoken right now because well, it is. Well, that's it OK.
1: Is... But 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 here's the thing. I've been thinking so much about Germany and yeah. how they dealt with the time after the Holocaust and how they brought their country back together and healed and got uh, a new and improved um, view of themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. Their reputation is much better, obviously, than it was during World War II. And what one of the things they did is make it illegal to do anything that glorifies mm-hmm. uh, the Nazis. And I don't understand why we have such a hard time taking down these statues that are a real affront to um, to any person of color and to anyone who who has a heart in the United States. So I don't know why we have such a hard time with that. It's so obvious. And if this would not be happening in Germany, because in Germany, they say, we want to move past that. We don't want, we You can never forget. I don't think anyone's forgotten the Holocaust. No one has forgotten no. Adolf Hitler, but we don't have to have, um, you know, we don't have to have monuments to him and to that I... era.
0: I meant to say, and I—I I am so sorry. Let me correct myself. Not Frederick Douglass. No, Frederick Douglass was a hero. Jefferson Davis, who was the <laughs> oh, president okay. yes. of the Confederate States.
1: And this still, is, we have like Jeff Davis Highway in Virginia, right?
0: We—we we do, and I—I I, I apologize <laughs> to listeners. I misspoke there. Um, That's so okay, it
1: happens to all of us.
0: <laughs> and we have people who truly believe that these Confederate statutes should remain as a reminder to history, but I sort of have a different impression. And I, I think that in the process of taking these statues down, um, there has to be a conversation among the locality and there has to be a, a democratic process to remove these. And look, Jeb Bush took down the Confederate flag uh, the state of, you know, that was hanging at the state Florida Capitol grounds and put it into a museum. That's what I would think would be the better alternative. Take this stuff down, put it into a museum, put these flags there. Um, but some people say, Oh no, Ryan, that's crazy. That's you're, you're falling, you're victim to political correctness. Um, and it was interesting, uh, Jolene, when I, back after that South Carolina, that horrible tragedy that occurred, in South Carolina, when, um, mm-hmm. that, that man shot up the, um, the, the right. prayer group on a, I think it was a right. Wednesday night. Um, so he had with,
1: prayed with.
0: It, yeah, I just, it's, it's very hard to think about. And in fact, yesterday I watched, um, President Obama's memorial speech for, um, one of the parishioners where he broke, if you remember, he had broken to song, yes. amazing grace. Yes. And it was just one of those moments where, um, Weren't it, you proud? It, I, I was. I mean,
1: not of what had happened, but no, no but of my hands. president. The way, yes, our president.
0: I, there were many moments like that, and I didn't agree with President Obama on some policy issues, and I think, but though we're we're con- never
1: going to agree on everything with anyone.
0: But I ha- I can say at that time, that President Obama, who, who, who had this just unique ability to heal at the time that our country needs that person that is leading, you know, he was the, the healer in chief at some times. And a lot of my Republican friends would say, I'm nuts for saying that, but every time something truly awful would happen, his words were very inspirational. And when he went down and broke into song, he's just somebody that made me proud and I really, really miss that character in the Oval Office. And I'm not afraid and to say- you know what it. we
1: need? We need a statue of Barack Obama. And you know what else I think? If we keep talking about how all of these statues are supposed to be something historical that we're supposed to keep around so that we don't forget, where are the statues of African Americans? Why are we just now getting to the point where we're having something for you know for Frederick Douglass, for Harriet Tubman, you know famous Marylanders, Marylanders who are yeah. African American, yeah. And you know it's it to me it's insane that we have all of these um, negative to me people who are glorified with statues, and we want to keep them yet we still don't have statues of prominent African-Americans in history. You know, Benjamin Banneker, you know, um, Sojourner Truth, Nat Turner. I'm sure that there are those in Virginia who would love to have a Nat Turner statue so that they can remember his part in history in Virginia.
0: I went Um, to, I visited (laughs) the African-American, back in April, I went to visit the African-American Museum down in D.C., Mm. and uh, yeah. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to visit, but oh, yeah. we spent about four hours, and it was just truly, truly emotional. It was very intense. And uh-huh. there were times where, um, and look, I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm a 31-year-old male who happens to to take American history um, and tr- try to place myself in that era. And I oftentimes get emotional when I read or when I go to museums like that. And it was... At times for me it was a little much. It was hard to watch to oh, think yeah. that no as a country that we've we've come a long ways, Jolene. We have come a long ways. But what I see happening Not now is far enough. It you're right. And look, when you have a president who says that there are fine people on both sides, we have to step back and say yeah, one group job bearing
1: forces and running over a poor girl who's only trying to, to have her First Amendment right on the correct side of the issue, if I don't mind saying so. I, I don't get that, man.
0: I, I don't either. I
1: don't. I can't. I can't.
0: <laughs> I, 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 I feel the same, where you just you turn on your TV or you listen to the radio or podcast or social media – and you read your twitter feed or your facebook feed and you you scroll through it and say to yourself and i say this often we as a country cannot allow this to become normal not now right. not never right never we right. can't allow this to become normal because our kids are watching my kids are young they're 13 and 10 and they know that something has gone horribly wrong they know it they feel it it's it's inherent right. in and they, they, their intuition tells them that everything about this presidency has politically not only been a complete disaster, but the character of someone who assumes the greatest office, most the, the office with the most gravitas in the world—that mm-hmm. there's something wrong, that it's not right. And you know, everybody says, "Well, you don't understand." A lot of the Trump's people tell me, Ryan, oh, you're 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 part of the media that just won't ever see any good in him whatsoever. Or you can't focus on issues that you agree with and that you believe are, you know, why couldn't you focus on the things that you do agree with him on? Because I'm sorry, but the character supersedes any policy that I could ever agree with. The actions that he takes daily, Jolene, it embarrasses me as an American. And this is, Mm -hmm. I'm a former Republican I left the Republican Party this year because there's no way in hell I would ever ever look my kids in the face and said I defended this and for the sake of keeping together in or in concert a political party that is completely lost its way and that has become nothing more than an, a wing of an extension of Trumpian ideology. I mean, where are the mm-hmm. where are the brave Republicans, Jolene, to come out and well, say where, where are these people?
1: Well, the good news is that the CEOs who left that manufacturing council and that other business council to the point that he finally had to dissolve it before it dissolved itself. And, you know, I believe that as we get more pressure from people like that, and they're hardly far left wingers, you know, so as Not at you get all. more people like that holding him accountable. I think it's gonna be a lot harder for the Republicans in in uh in DC to continue to have his back.
0: Well, look at look at someone like Larry Hogan, who is clearly not a Trump guy. He and he never has been. And I, I think that he would he would have been a lot better shape had Hillary Clinton won the election. He has to oh, take yeah, it from, no doubt. he would he has to take it from both sides. Look at Look at, look at how some of the people inside of the Republican Party in Maryland are reacting to Governor Hogan. Now, I think that you're right, that the, the attention spans are short, and they, there's a, what, a year to the election, or more than a year, and this is August of 2017. The primary is in June, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see somebody come out of the woodwork in the Republican Party in Maryland who challenges Governor Hogan from the right. Nah, I, w- I, w- I don't see You don't it. think
1: so? I don't think so. Just I, to make I, they a statement, it won't win. Do it. No, I, I can't even see it happening. I mean, they're having their little hissy fit right now, but they'll they'll lick their wounds and get themselves back together soon. It just can't be that big of a deal to them. I can't believe they truly care whether or not that statue is there. So um, I, I believe they're going to get over it pretty soon, whoever's mad at them. and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of effort to run for office. I I just I just don't see it. He's their best shot. So well, I think I, his biggest problem is going to be uh, Democrats coming for him.
0: Well, I agree, and, and I I, I I think Lair. I like I really like our governor. I think he's a nice guy. Let me ask you this question. And and do do you think that some people would argue that Governor Hogan made it politically expedient? Decision to take down the Tani statue um, and to to vote on that as part of that committee. What do you think? Was it was it too late? Was it the right time? What what do you make of that?
1: I mean, clearly from my perspective, it's been too late by a, by at least a decade. But a decade ago, everybody in power was a Democrat, and it was still there, right? So I'm just glad that it's gone. It took a long time. Um, I believe that he saw the writing on the wall. The governor is a smart man. And he saw what was happening around the country. Um, it was not the time after Charlotte still to continue to uh, support that statue and talk about it was political correctness run amok, which is what he said in 2015. I think that when you've got people with torches in the street in Charlottesville and a girl getting run down by a hate monger, he knew that the time had come and he did the right thing. I'm actually shocked that it happened in a way, though, because when I saw those poor babies um, get shot, you know, and all those, frankly, mostly little white kids who were shot and killed, and we did not have anything happen with our gun control laws nationally. Um, I was really shocked that Congress would continue to support the NRA um, at that time. So, I, you know, when when you see a bunch of kids get killed and nothing happens, I was a little bit surprised still that Charlottesville was enough to get the statue down. But I'm glad, obviously.
0: Do you think it has to get worse to get better? Do you think this is going to get... Do you think our relationship among... I mean, do, do you think this is going to devolve into a, another civil war of some sorts between these factions oh, gosh, in the I country?
1: Oh,
0: I hope not. I, well, I don't either, <laughs> I, but I'm I, saying
1: that... Yeah, I do hope not. I mean, I think that w- one thing that's been happening in the last few years is we have cell phone cameras. So as far as race relation goes... When you've got um, evidence that police officers are shooting unarmed black men, and um, and and oftentimes the police officers have been lying about it, then once you see it, it's not that anything new has happened. It's just that now you have the evidence. So it's something that's bringing more attention to um, to not just race relations, but our judicial system and how race plays a a role in that. And so a lot of things aren't really new that are happening. It's just that people are more aware of them, especially white people are becoming more aware of things. I know I had a conversation with a white woman today uh, and she's very open, honest, and, you know, very liberal white woman. And we had a very honest conversation about um, police interacting with black men. And I'm the mother of five black sons. So it's something that I have to think about all the time. And she didn't at all act like, oh, you're just exaggerating. You know, she didn't give me that at all. I think that five years ago, she would have at least been thinking to herself, oh, she's exaggerating. It's really not that bad. She didn't have that attitude at all, and I think that that's what's going to make the difference when white people who have privilege, you know, when they're in a position that they um, can see and admit and realize they've got to join this fight with us, things will get better. Hmm. You know, that's well, how things changed during civil rights movement.
0: Well, you know, as, as we wrap television. up, I wanted to bring to your attention that – On the Eastern Shore, Congressman Andy Harris, much like the president, took two days, two days past the incident in Charlottesville to put out a tweet, a tweet nonetheless, (laughs) condemning the violence. And I don't know where you stand on Andy Harris, but how how (laughs) difficult is it to... Issue a statement. That's look, you were a communications director for a United States congressman, and you know that if you have to get something out, you have to be at the ready. And we have every single tool at our disposal with social media, whatever, to release a something, a statement as something goes down. But it's almost like this guy is so connected to Donald Trump. Nothing that Trump does is wrong. That he Uh made a statement, and and the the sad thing is, is that it took Trump to come out during a, I guess, a a speech at the the White House to, to, after he made a statement, subsequent that, Andy Harris's office released a statement on his official Twitter account for his (laughs) his United States Congress, and I just want to say to Handy Harris and his people listening, because I know they listen, um, you know, you guys have got to get it together. This is too important to wait. These are statements that you have to make followed by some real action. And I'm not saying anything, you know, don't I don't want anybody to read into what I'm saying about Andy Harris. I'm just saying that look, you you have an obligation as a representative of 750,000 people in the United States Congress to be on top of your game. Don't wait 2 days to make a statement. And pretend like it never happened. I just that really bothers me. I got to tell you, it really does. Well,
1: it seems seems to me the same attitude as Trump did, where you have yeah. to drag it out of him. I mean, look, Trump consistently tweets constantly about everything. So the fact that it took him so long to say anything in the first place was painful. Then the fact that it was so tone deaf, and then. He had to be forced at gunpoint to come back and say something reasonable, but he just couldn't stand that he said something reasonable. So he had to come back again and be <laughs> a jerk again. So, you know, that's the guy who Andy Harris is associated with. What do you expect?
0: Well, I watched that press conference that took, I mean, it was, first of all, I, I looking at his advanced people, I want to understand who the hell would ever have a hold a press conference in a freaking vestibule of Trump Towers. I mean, come on. Like, what, it's like, a, it was stuff. like they were, you know, they were like in a cave, and, you know, I could just see people like a FedEx guy rolling up in, having him sign something <laughs> while he's in the lobby of Trump <laughs> Tower. Stop. You know, like somebody from the gym would stop down like, Oh, you know, from this 11th floor, to the sixth floor and Jim short and say, yeah, Hey, what's up? What's going on there? <laughs> Mr. I mean, what, what kind of advanced person would allow him to do a press conference mm-hmm. in that venue where it was like, they were talking inside of a, um, of a, it was so bad. And it, what, what, what was even worse was the content that he went off script and you're looking at this and you're like, could this get any worse? Oh, Yes, it just got worse. It just Oh, got, I think
1: that every day. Every day I think uh, nothing worse can happen, and then every day pretty much something worse happens. But back to Andy Harris again. Does uh, Heather Mazier live in his district now?
0: <laughs> uh, I think – I believe she has a some sort of farm um, on the eastern shore. She and her wife have a um, – some sort of farm. I know she moved out of Tacoma Park area after she ran well, for know, governor.
1: I, I think there's still mm. time for her to mount a credible campaign.
0: Well, there's a, there's a very nice woman that is running, um, and district one, her name's Allison Galbraith. And she was on oh, my okay. show a few, a few weeks ago. And look, we know it's going so, so to be tough.
1: So does she have this then maybe Heather can come help her.
0: Well, I, 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 that would be something. And I think that, look, Andy Harris seems like a nice guy. Personally, I, he doesn't—he doesn't strike me as a as a bad guy. But um, you know, when he's calling on states to or the federal government to withhold money from the states um, because uh, they refuse to opt out of this phony voter commission that President Trump
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: set up when he lied and said that three million illegal immigrant voters. Uh, voted because he can't reconcile the fact that he actually lost the popular vote to um, Hillary Clinton. I mean, what does that say? He wants to withhold federal funds from because I because voters shouldn't be expected to hand over to the federal government the last four digits of their social security number. Uh, I I mean, well, of course, the
1: federal government already has all our social security numbers.
0: So the whole thing's insane. Well, it's just a sham. And we should call it that. And Look, I think the press have an obligation to, to, if something is flatly wrong, and you know from your career in journalism that if something is wrong, the press should not hesitate to call out a lie as a lie. And that's, absolutely. And I think that that's important. Look, this is an institution here that is, its sole purpose is to hold accountable as the fourth state of government, to hold accountable. Uh, The it's leaders that represent our country. And so, you know, sometimes the press, they overreach. And sometimes the nonstop cable news chatter, it can be exhausting. I'm exhausted. Every time we turn on CNN, it's like something new or when we turn on MSNBC. And um, and look, I love Morning Joe. I watch it all the time. Um, And I and I love several of these shows on CNN. But sometimes I just have to turn it off because I can't take it anymore. It's just perpetual. Um, but look, the Democrats are going to have to figure out the direction that they want to move in 2020. They have to put forward. It can't just be anti-Trump. It has to be you. They have to present and enumerate a clear set of policy differences that is going to win back this country. And so I don't know if if they can win just on being anti-Trump. I hope not, because we need to really have a conversation about the issues that will drive the conversation because look, you go up to Western Maryland where I grew up. People are not necessarily tuning into all this cable news chatter, but they're concerned about how they're going to pay for their kids' college. They're concerned about how a veteran's going to be taken care of by the VA, and they're concerned about how they're going to pay their mortgage. These kitchen table issues, and that's what I hope that both of these parties can get back to doing, Jolene. I mean, that's important. Right. That's, this is. And we've lost that so far in this presidency because every day it's a shit show. It is. It's just is. It's just – it's nonstop. It, it is a complete show. I mean this is what he promised. He said, I'm going to give you people a show. And boy, did he deliver on that promise. The one thing that he did not renege on was his promise to give us a never-ending show. It's like what's going to happen in, in in season two? Um so, <laughs> so, so some people yeah some I people... just
1: hope it doesn't end with the with the nuclear war that's all uh, I want
0: uh, uh, If well... I could
1: just get through the next several years with no war and um, be able to breathe the air and drink the water mm-hmm. that bad things don't continue to happen just generally if he can just 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 hang on and not... Completely trash our country. I would appreciate it. Well,
0: um, who was it? Jimmy Kimmel the other night said that. Why can't we just make him king, where we he goes and stays locked in a room in a tower that's (laughs) above everybody else, and then you know you kind of roll him out to, um, and then you know every so often, and then we have somebody else that presides over our our who actually runs
1: the country. Yeah.
0: So. All right, so wrapping up here, tell us real quickly, you're running in Council District 5, and so where can we find your website? I assume you have a website.
1: Of course I have a website. It's joleneivy.com, J-O-L-E-N-E-I-V-E-Y. Don't forget the E and Ivy. So that's my website. There's even a place you can click to contribute, so thank you very much. I'm very happy to take contributions. Mm-hmm. and um yeah it's it's exciting i'm really looking forward to it i wish the election were sooner um but you know that's the way it you're, goes
0: well you're you're busy you're a busy person very busy.
1: Yeah, I well, that's why I have, have five kids. You know, if only had one or two, what would I do with my life? But I've got five, so I'm, they've kept me busy all these years. And now that they're kind of getting out from under me, it, it frees up my hands for even more. So, it, wow. it's a it's a good time for me.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at your website now, and I see this pretty cool picture of you standing next to Barack Obama. And uh, is this your dad? In the picture front? Yes, and
1: front. it was so cool. I remember wow. that. That was out at Bowie State, and it was Senator Obama at that time. And he was, he'd just spoken at a big Democratic rally. And um, Glenn had run to get the car because, you know, my dad had a cane and wasn't mm-hmm. really able to walk very far. So we were walking along with my dad. And who came flying past us with those long legs but Barack Obama? And I looked at one of my sons, and two of them were home from school that day and had come with us. So I said, David, go run him down and tell him that your granddad wants a picture with him. (laughs) And so you could see him stop. He He listened to David. And he had this look about him like, oh, man, I don't have time for this. Say no to this old black guy on a cane, right? (laughs) So he turned around and he came back and he said, can we just do it real quick? And I said, yes. And there was someone there with a camera and he took one picture and he was gone. And then Glenn shows up with a car and and he missed the whole thing. So that was was too bad for Glenn because he just missed being in the picture. But well, I showed that picture to my dad many times because he lived with us for the last five and a half years of his yeah. life. And I had many opportunities to show him the picture and say, look, dad, you're shaking the hand of the president of the United States. <laughs> so it, was, it and, was such a wonderful thing to have.
0: And how old was your dad when he passed?
1: He was 93. And wow. that was five years ago now.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. Gosh, five and a half yeah. years ago. He's gone as long as he'd lived with us at this point.
0: Well, you know, I, my granddad just turned 92 um, in, in July, and he's yeah, he's a World War II veteran. Um, yes, that
1: was and, mine.
0: And I just and I wanted to share and impart one story that is it's sort of tough to tell, but I was. Um, I, I remember when I went to Barack Obama's inauguration, I got up at two o'clock in the morning. At that time, I was working on Capitol Hill. And in 2000, it was yeah January 20th, 2009. And I got up at like two o'clock in the morning. I had my ticket. I stood out in in, um, in line, waited to go through the Secret mm-hmm. Service because I wanted to get right. my spot. And I was standing the whole time. And it was, it was super cold that morning. It was yes, really cold. I
1: remember. I was out there too, man. It was yeah. really cold.
0: It was it was really really cold. And so we finally got through security probably around seven thirty, and it was three layers. And um, and then I, I walked up and, and found my spot. Um, it was on the um, the if I was I was looking at him, I was on the left side, and so right next to me um, was the Tuskegee Airman. And, oh, nice! And it and they were sitting, and they had rolled in one at a time, and I was sitting next to some of these guys that I, of course, studied in history class and knew exactly who they were, and I I was literally literally standing right next to the Tuskegee airmen, mm-hmm. and I remember leaning over to one of them, and it was right before the service had started. They you know they do all the pomp and circumstance. And I was, let's see, eight years, I was, you know, 22, 23 at the time. And I just remember looking down at this, this elderly gentleman, he probably had to be in his late 80s, maybe even early 90s. And I looked at him and I said, what do you I said, what do you what do you think about all of this? And so I'm standing there, he reaches up and he grabs my hand. And he didn't know my name. And he said, young man, only in America could this have happened. Hmm. And it was just one of those things. And it's even hard for me to tell this story because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is, this is America. This is the beauty and essence of our country that my grandfather fought for, that your dad um, was part of. I mean, this greatest Mm -hmm. generation where they're seeing for the first time in history, an African-American male who won the presidency, didn't just win, but won by, you know, a lot. uh, Yeah, right. And went on to um you know and won a second term and and it's true. And forget all the politics, the outside noise, but you know, even as Barack Obama had once said, that only in America is this story even possible. And that's right. where where we have to readjust this conversation instead of talking about what divides us, that for everybody in this country, for immigrants, for you know, for the kid you know up in Hagerstown, Maryland, like me, that grew up in a middle class family that was blessed to go, that was lucky enough to be able to go to college and go on to um, to move to Montgomery County and you know and live a a, a middle class life. That this all of this is possible because of where we are and the country that we live in, and that's we just have to remember that we're all trying to make this this country a more perfect union and so indeed it, uh, well I, I
1: will just throw in one thing before you sign off which is yeah. that my dad was a buffalo soldier at mm. world war ii so that was uh also very cool and yeah when when obama was elected i was with him of course election wow. night Wow. And I, I'm telling you, everybody, my kids, everybody's running around screaming and <laughs> laughing and crying. It was like the best night ever. I was supposed to be out at parties that night with Glenn, but yeah. I was too bedraggled to drag myself out to a party. It would have been too much work to look human after campaigning, you know. So I stayed home with the with the boys and my dad, and I'm just so glad I did it was so much more fun with them. It really was.
0: Well, it's, you know, Well, thank you for having
1: me, Ryan. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I hope that, um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know I did. And I I wanted to get you, I wanted to get you on for a long time. And finally, this was the, the opportunity presented itself at the, the right time. And so, um, you know you're you my... Tani. Th- he brought it
1: together. <laughs> he brought Roger
0: Connie <laughs> has finally done something to unite two people um that's, that's in this right. country um and and look i um these are not easy conversations, and they're not and and we have to we have to to be delicate at times, but we also sometimes have to get rip off the band aid and just have these tough conversations about where our country is at this time who's leading it and hold these people accountable because we can never go back to, we can never go backwards. We can't, we just, we can't let it happen for, for our generation, for our kids and for their kids. And so we have to be the leaders. We have to be the, the reasonable voice in this sea of madness that's happening and just do the right thing. And so I'm really happy that you came on and talked to me tonight. This was honestly, this was, I've done this show since 2015, um, and I began it in January and I just wanted to just to have a dialogue with people and have a conversation. Right. It didn't have to be anything right. more than that. And so honestly, and I'm, and this is no BS, this was really truly one of my most favorite opportunities to have that conversation <laughs> because I feel like you're, you're, you're just brutally honest with people and you don't shy away from offering, um, you know, the full unadulterated opinion. And that's, that's what we need. That's what we really just need not politicians but just average citizens who want to make a difference who aren't afraid to tell you the truth and i really appreciate that i really do thank you
1: ryan no i do and i appreciate your show thank you so much for doing it
0: well good luck in your council district and um, i encourage people to sign on to your website joleneivy.com make a donation and support you in your race and then i love you ryan uh, yeah. Go on and do some great things. And I'm sure that we will run into one another. And one of these days, if you have me, I'll come out and knock doors for you.
1: There you go. Anybody so, I've ever known has knocked doors for me. Trust me. If you say that, work. I'm signing you up.
0: <laughs> well, you should. Thanks, sweetie. All right. we you, have, well, you a have, have a good night. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank
1: you, too. Bye-bye.
0: So, Jolene Ivy joined the show. Fantastic guest. Um Excellent conversation. Was glad to have her. Um, she's running for Council District um, 5 in Prince George's County. There is an election next year, as we all know. So with that, I uh, wish everybody a great week. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can find us again on the web at detail.com Please sign up. Subscribe to our website, and we'll send you a daily email of all that's happening in a minor detail. World, you can listen to this show every Monday night, on or every Sunday night. I'm sorry, I've I've misspoke a few times tonight. It's late. I've had a long day. A lot of I got too much sun. I feel like that from Billy Madison, where he's just laying out in the sun all day. Um, so, blogtalkradio.com/slash a minor detail. Thank you all for listening and uh, stay tuned. We have um, next week, I believe we have gubernatorial candidate Alec Ross, who's going to join the show. We're looking forward to that. Y'all have a great week.